we're a country of rights. Uh, you read our Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then we have a bill of rights with even more rights, you know, the right to freedom of religion, right to freedom of speech, right to, to bear arms, and, and so forth. And you, when you get arrested, you even get told, you have the right to remain silent. We have all these rights. And we might say to somebody, uh, that's kind of how our country is made up, is rights are a big thing um, that, of how we live, the air we breathe, just as a culture, that's something that we take in. And we might say to somebody who does something that they shouldn't have done to us, we'll say, well, what gives you the right to do X or whatever it is? What gives you the right to treat me that way? Or what gives you the right to do this or do that? And sometimes we question other people's rights. Who do you think you are? Like, who, who made you the boss of me? Like, somebody kind of overstepping. Like, I'm recognizing that you are, like, violating my rights, and you don't have the right to be doing the, you know, controlling me in the way that you are. Or we might say that someone has forfeited their rights. Like, oh, they forfeited their right to uh, be part of this you know, country club or something like that. Or they forfeited their right to live. Or they forfeited their right to be part of this family or something like that. And rights are what... Tell us what we're allowed to do and what we're owed by other people or by the government. Like, this is what I'm allowed to do. This is my right to do this. And also, uh, it's my right to receive this from you, from other people or from the government or whatever it is. And, and rights are, you could say, they're what we're entitled to. The rights tell us what we deserve. And we can sometimes feel, uh, as it, you know, good Christian people, it's like, okay, well, I'm, you know, I try not to be selfish, but sometimes we we might get in this, this place where we kind of feel like, okay, I've earned the right to do something. Like, I know I don't deserve to, to do this, to splurge on this thing. Like, it's only God's grace I'm saved. But, you know, I've been good for a certain amount of time, or I've had a hard day, and now I've earned the right to lay down and do nothing and watch a football game or something like that. Like, I've earned the right to do this. Um, or and we feel like we've earned rights when we pay for something. Like, I pay the Internet company, and so I have the right to reliable Internet service. Or we uh, maybe anything we paid for, we think we have the right, some sort of right there. Sometimes we think we've earned the right to something that we wouldn't otherwise do or that we know we shouldn't do, and we say, like, well, uh, I shouldn't be doing this, but I've earned it. Like, it, normally I wouldn't let myself do this or, you know, this bad habit or this thing, but, oh, you know, I, I've earned the right, like, I, I've earned this, I shouldn't be doing it. Or we feel like we have rights over things that we own that belong to us. Like, this is my property, I have the right to do with it what I want. Or this is my body, I have the right to do with it what I want. And we feel, maybe feel like we have the right to a certain standard of living. Like, however we grew up, we feel like, well, I have the right to a house, to a car, to a phone, to all these things. And all this is just circulating uh, in our minds, whether you even think it consciously or not. That's just like like a fish. You don't ask a fish, like, hey, do you know what, it, what water is? They're going to be like, what, you know, what do you mean? Like, you know, they, they don't know anything but water. That's all they know. We don't know anything but a mindset of, I have the right to do this, or I have certain rights. I have, you know, unalienable rights. And this week we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis on the life of Joseph, Joseph called Becoming a Blessing. And we've seen in the book of Genesis, how our rejection of God as our creator, as our king, as our father, has led to a world filled with curse. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. But then we read in Genesis 12 that God chooses to bless Abraham's family. I'm going to bless you 
so that you'll be a blessing. He, through Abraham's family, he wants to pour blessing back into the world. You know, imagine like uh, this whole room is just filled, I don't know, black sludge or something, and then it's like, I want through this pipe or something, I want to pour something that will clean it back in, into it. And Abraham's family was chosen by God to be like this pipe to pour blessing, to pour cleanness, to pour something that will heal this world back into it. And, and so the, the key word is through them. Through them he wants to do it. And here in the last chapters of Genesis, we're following the life of Joseph, who is the fourth generation of this family. We just sang in that song um, about Jacob. Jacob was his dad. Uh, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And so Joseph is the fourth generation here. I think that's how you count generations, but uh, you can correct me later if I'm wrong. Um, But God has promised to work through this family to bring blessing back to the world. And that means God wants to work through the individuals in this family. And as the family of God today, God wants to work through us to bless the world with his love, with his presence, with the message of who he is, the truth about who he is. And that means that God wants to work through each of us. God wants to work through you. God wants to work through me. God wants to use us. But sometimes we can get in the way of being used by God. We get in the way of allowing God to work through us. And one of the greatest barriers to God working through us is holding on to our rights. Rights that are real or rights that are imagined or rights that we've decided that we have or rights that we've actually been given. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We're, we're supposed to be this channel through which God pours his blessing into the world. But when we hold on to our rights, it's like a clog in that channel. It's like we don't, God is, is not, uh, we're not allowing God to use us. And today we're covering three chapters well, not two and a half chapters, technically. Genesis 43, 44, the first 15 verses of chapter 45. We're not going to you know, like hit every single verse. There's a lot of repetition because there's a lot of explaining of what has happened before. It's like, oh, oh we just heard this. Yeah, you know, but it's, it's important. So they repeat themselves a bit as they're explaining things to one another. And this passage before us today has uh, an amazing conclusion. And so we're going to walk through this passage uh, and then we're going to come to uh, what's like a big summarizing idea of what it's about. And so last week we saw Joseph administer his first round of tests to his brothers. That they, He's in Egypt. He's been there for 20 years. His brothers sold him into slavery uh, and eventually makes it down into Egypt and then he is in prison and then eventually rises to be second in command of this nation, of the nation of Egypt, because he can interpret dreams. Pharaoh has this dream, and Joseph says, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Here's what you need to do. Store up uh, grain during those years of plenty so that you'll have stuff to give out during the years of famine. And then Pharaoh's like, well, who else should manage this besides you? And so Joseph gets appointed, and he basically becomes an Egyptian, and he's managing all of Egypt for Pharaoh. And so there's seven years of plenty past. Joseph has two kids. And then as the famine years come, it spreads all the way up to where Joseph is from, Canaan, and his family, they're looking around, they've got no food. So they come down and they stand before Joseph, the brother, 11 of the brothers, 10 of the brothers come down, they stand before Joseph, they're the ones who sold him into slavery and wanted to kill him because they were jealous of him, they hated him, he was his father's favorite, so they sold him off. And now they're standing in front of him, but they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And Joseph tests them, like, are these the same guys that sold me into slavery 20 years ago? Are these the same guys that are jealous and hateful and full of rivalry and deceitful and murderous? Are these the same guys? And so Joseph does a test. He says, okay, you say you have another brother that isn't here, Benjamin. 
and he has a special interest in Benjamin because Benjamin is his full brother. And he's like, okay, to prove you're honest men, you say you're honest men and not spies, just coming to check things out. I want you to go back to your father's, your homeland. I want you to come back with Benjamin and prove to me that you are honest men. And he says, but I'm going to keep Simeon here with me. You're one of your brothers. He's going to stay here with me, kind of like his collateral or something. And you're going to go back and bring Benjamin back. So that's what chapter 43 picks up. It's they've gone back to Egypt. Um, Jacob, their dad, is very upset. Uh, and now, eventually, they've, sorry, they've gone back to Canaan, and they're sitting there, and they're like, okay, we don't have food again. What are we going to do? We've got to go back. And, and uh, Judah tells Jacob, we have to take Benjamin with us. And he's like, no, no, you're not going to take Benjamin. Like, you've lost one son already to you, Joseph, and I've lost Simeon. I don't know where he is. He's down in Egypt somewhere. He's like, I'm not going to send Benjamin with you. And Judah's like, no, the guy said we will not see him again unless we bring Benjamin. And finally, uh, Jacob, their dad, agrees to it. And he prays this prayer over them in verse 14 of chapter 43. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children... I am bereaved. Which is a bit of a, I mean, that end part is pretty sad. He's just like, I might lose my kids here, or one of them, or a couple of them. Like, who? they might come back without Benjamin. I don't know what they did with Simeon. They could be lying. They came back with money in their sacks. More money, like, did they sell him? What's going on here? Like, okay, like, we're going to have food and everyone's going to live. We've got to do this somehow. But he prays, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. He realizes this is a precarious situation that, if they mess this up, like they could be something bad could happen to them. So he asked that God would grant them mercy. In verse 23, <coughs> they're before Joseph. Uh, Joseph sees them and he says, "Okay, I want to prepare a meal before them." And Joseph is off doing things. He says, "There's going to be a meal at noon." He has them stay in his house, and then they're pre- they're waiting while the meal is being prepared in Joseph's house. And uh, they're all worried because they're like, "Hey, when we got back to Canaan." There was money in our sacks, and we didn't steal it. We don't know how it got there. That was the money we used to pay for this grain. We brought it all back. So, you know, they're worried. They're like, they're going to make us. They're going to kill us or make us slaves if they know that we took. They think we took this money. Like we didn't take the money. We brought it. Uh, Forty, verse twenty-three. Joseph, steward of his house, says, "Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money." And then he brought Simeon out to them. So remember, they left Simeon down there. So now the brothers, all the 11, besides Joseph, are reunited. Um, but we get an indication here that it seems like the money that Joseph had put in their sacks was out of kindness. His, the steward of the house knew about it, and so he's wanting to provide for them. Like he, had this, he says, okay, um, I fear God, um, and I want to send you off and take care of your families. And then they discover the money. They see it as like, oh, oh geez, God's against us. Something bad's going to happen. But Joseph was trying to be kind. Um, but verses 26 and 28, they bow themselves before Joseph. And you remember the dream Joseph had back in chapter 37 where he had a dream <coughs> that uh, the sheaves of wheat and then the stars bowed down before him. And all his brothers were like, really? We're going to bow down before you? And this is, I believe, the third time they're bowing down before him. Uh, and so his dream is coming true. And Joseph keeps seeing it happen. They don't know what's happening. But as he sees his brother, um, it's kind of varied on how old people think Benjamin is or how much younger he is than Joseph, but it's been, so there was the 20 years leading up to the years of uh, abundance, then there's the seven, uh, or sorry, 20 years leading up to the years of famine, now we're two years into the famine, so it's been 
uh, 22 years since he's seen uh, his brother Joseph and it, or his brother Benjamin. And at seeing him, he's just overwhelmed with compassion. He's like, I need to get out of here. Like, I'm just going to weep in front of these guys. He's just, he is heart warm seeing his brother again. In verse 33, <coughs> they're sitting around eating. And the end of the verse says, the men looked at one another in amazement. And so they're just these guys that are up in, you know, way off, and now they're just looking at each other like, what has happened? We're, now we're eating with this guy we barely know, getting like this royal dinner with this Egyptian, and they're just like, what? Is, they're looking at each other in amazement. Like, what are we doing here? Like, we, And we just came from a place of famine, barely putting food on the table, and now they're just getting this, like, what is going on? And when we read, when we start looking at chapter 44, we get a bit of deja vu. If, you were, if you've read chapter 42 over here last week, you see that there's almost a similar test. Joseph put money in their, in their grain sacks, and as they're going back to Canaan, they realize, oh, there's money in our grain sacks, and so they're afraid. And again, a similar thing happens. So let's read verse, chapter 44, verses 1 through 13. <coughs> then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. <clears throat> he said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. And so they, they are so confident. We did not take this cup. You're accusing us. We did not take this cup. They're so confident. They're like, whoever you find it with, can, they'll, they can die, and the rest of us will be your servants. And then when they find out, oh, it's actually in one of our sacks. I, who knows if they think Benjamin actually took it or not. But they all tear their clothes. They're just like, this is, you know, this is like a tragedy. They're responding to it. But there's, there's, there's a test built in here. Benjamin was favored at dinner, and Joseph was favored by his father back in chapter 37. And so what are the brothers going to do? They watch, they're watching Benjamin get all these loads of food we see in chapter 43. More than all of them, he's favored, he's getting more than them, more attention. Will they be jealous? Will they hate him? Will they abandon him to slavery or death? Um, just like they did with Joseph. When Joseph was favored, they hated him, they were jealous of him, and they abandoned him to death or slavery. They first wanted to kill him and then they sold him into slavery. So is that going to happen again? And Joseph, <coughs> in reading in chapter, continuing on in verses 14 through 17, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. 
Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judas said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And this word divination, you might be distracted by that, what that means. Uh, it was a method used in the ancient world of gaining knowledge uh, by supernatural means. You know, there's various ways of doing it. People would look in cups or they'd look at the, uh, the, the, the guts of animals. You know, It's kind of like odd stuff. God always forbid that sort of thing. But it seems like Joseph is kind of playing... Uh, playing as if, you know, this is what an Egyptian do, and so he's playing it up like this is something he does. Maybe he actually did practice it. It's hard, we're not told. Um, he, he says he practices it, but maybe that was all kind of part of this ploy. But what's interesting is divination was a way of gaining knowledge by supernatural means. But interestingly, using this cup is the means by which Joseph gains knowledge about what's going on inside of his brothers. Are they going to abandon, abandon Benjamin? And so this thing is being used to gain this inner knowledge that he couldn't have known otherwise. And here they come back and <clears throat> Judah says, we'll all be your servants. You know, we're guilty. I mean, it kind of seems like, well, there's no explanation for this. We don't know why the cup is in there. Maybe Benjamin took it. I don't know. We're guilty. We'll all be your servants. And Joseph says, no, no, no. Only the one who's guilty has to do it, Benjamin. The rest of you can go up to your dad. And so let's read what Judah says in verses 18 through 34. This is a big speech Judah gives. And Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, and when our father said, <coughs> Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil. I would find my father. And so that's a long speech by Judah. And we saw in chapter 43 where he says, like, where uh, Jacob is saying, I will not let Benjamin go. And Judah says, 
I'll be a pledge of safety. I will not let anything happen to him. And it's like, okay, is Judah going to fulfill his pledge? And he does here. He actually says, not just uh, uh, we need to take him back with us, but I will take his place. And remember, they're talking to Joseph about Joseph's father. If Benjamin doesn't come back with us, he's not saying your father. Our father will die. And for Joseph, he's hearing, my father's going to die if Benjamin doesn't come back with them. And so Judah's saying, I'm going to take his place. I'm going to substitute myself for him. That I'm going to stay and be a servant for you. I'm going to be a slave for you instead of him being a slave here. Because if he doesn't go back, Jacob will die. And what's interesting, when you look back at chapter 37, Judah's the one who suggested we, they sell Joseph into slavery. And now Judah himself is putting himself in, in slavery for the purpose of saving his brother. Now look how Joseph responds in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 45. After the speech, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I mean, can you imagine that? This guy, you have no idea who he is. You just think he's some Egyptian guy who spoke roughly to you last time you were there and who's going to take one of your brothers into slavery, who imprisoned one of your brothers. And now all of a sudden he's like, I'm Joseph. Uh, you know, what's, what are they supposed to do? And also, what starts going through their mind? Joseph, the Joseph we sold into slavery, the Joseph we wanted to kill, the, the Joseph who's now in control of like this whole country, the Joseph who has our life in his hands, this Joseph is the one, and they're dismayed at his presence. And Joseph says to him, verse 4, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And our big idea, we have kind of has two, two, well, two statements. The first is this. God's plans move forward because of people who die to themselves. God's plans move forward because of people who die to themselves. I'm going to talk about that a little bit, and then we're going to do 
the kind of the opposite of that. So God's plans move forward because of people who die to themselves. But the other side of that is God's plans move forward in spite of people who live for themselves. And so we're going to talk first about God's plans move forward because of people who die to themselves. You think about rights that the people in this story have and what rights do they have uh, in what they've experienced in their life. And Judah surrendered the rights to his own life. Uh, what, you know, what, he has a family back at home. He has sons. He has grandkids. He has a dad. He has what, possessions back up in Canaan. And he says, no, I'll be your servant. Who, he doesn't know how long it's going to be. He doesn't know Joseph's going to reveal himself. He's saying, I'll be my servant for the rest of your life, uh, or the rest of my life. And so he's surrendering the rights to his life so that he can keep his pledge of safety, so he can save Benjamin's life, and so he can send and save his dad's life. Because he says, if my dad, Benjamin doesn't come back, my dad is going to die. And on the other side, Joseph surrendered his rights to get even. Like his brothers did horrible things to him. It's been a long time, but they've done horrible things to him. He calls, he talks about it as hardship and affliction. And when he first sees them, uh, he weeps when they're talking to him and they're talking about what they did to him. And he just, he weeps because of it. So Joseph surrenders his rights to get even. He doesn't seek any, uh, at least how I understand the story, there's kind of different ways you can look at it, but it, it seems like he doesn't seek vengeance. He doesn't seek payback. He does these tests which may seem uh, maybe harsh or like, oh, that was a little unnecessary. But remember, this guy was abused, went through trauma by the hands of these men. And now they're standing in front of him, and they don't recognize him. And he's trying to test, are these the same guys? What should I do with them? Joseph surrendered his rights to get even. I want to read from Philippians 2. I don't have the page for the Black Bibles here. Um, but just listen to these words that described Jesus. Judah surrendered the rights of his own life. Joseph surrendered his rights to get even. Now listen to these words describing Jesus, which also give a command to us. So it's Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And the word, the part there where it's translated, verse 7, or verse 6, where it says, uh, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Some other translations say, uh, a thing to be used to his own advantage. And the person who had the most rights in the world, uh, who has ever walked this earth, was Jesus. Uh, equality with God, the Son of God, the one who's going to be the King of Israel, the King of the world, the Lord, look where he's exalted to. Every knee to bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And yet we're told that he did not count his equality with God, his sonship uh, with the Father, as something that he should 
exploit to his own advantage. It was something that he should use, that he should grasp on and say, this is my right. You people need to treat me the way you would want to treat me. Like, I don't need to go through with this. And he did not hold that as something that he lorded over people, but he came, we're told, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus when we think about Jesus surrendered his rights to his own life, to do God's will, to substitute himself in our place when we should be the ones that are living in slavery, living in death, suffering the penalty of sin, living under its curse. We should die for sin, but Jesus is the pledge of our safety that we will be brought safely to the Father. None of us will be lost because if you've trusted in Jesus, because Jesus sacrificed himself in our place and the Father will not lose us because the Son has kept his word. He's taken our place. He's our pledge of safety. And Jesus, Judas says, I'll bear his blame. I'll, I'll take the blame for it if he doesn't come home. And Jesus bears our blame. He bears our shame, our guilt, our condemnation, the penalty for our sin. And he's the last one who should be bearing the blame or being punished. You know, just like Judah. That, I mean, Judah has plenty of guilt of his own, but he didn't, he didn't put the cup in Benjamin's sack or take the cup. And so he has no guilt in that regard. But he says, I'm going to take his place. And Jesus takes our place, and now he's our pledge of safety that we'll be able to stand before the Father. And if you think about the brothers, as they're standing before Joseph, they realize this is the guy that we have wronged so deeply. And they're dismayed. And Joseph says, don't be distressed and don't be angry at yourselves. And when we stand in God's presence... There's only one reason that we should stand there with confidence. There's only one reason we should not be dismayed. We should not be distressed. We should not just cower in fear at what is coming to us. It's because Jesus uh, has taken on the penalty for our sin. And Joseph, he doesn't seek to get even. And so he says, you don't have to come near. He says, come near. Uh, Let me talk to you about what God has done, how God has worked all this out so that you guys selling me here, that that very act has become the means by which you're saved. And Jesus on the cross, the reason he's on the cross, he's doing God's will and seeking the glory of the Father, but he's there to bear the penalty for our sins. And our sins put him on that cross, and his death that he's getting for our sin is the, the very event that actually saves us now from the sin that for, for why he's on it. And we can be calmed and be drawn near to God because he sent Jesus to preserve our lives. So the first part, as you see, is God's plans move forward because of people who die to themselves. Judah dies to himself. He says, it's not my rights, it's not my plan, it's not what I want for the rest of my life, I'm going to die to myself. Joseph dies to himself. He dies to his rights to get even, like, oh, these guys have wronged me, I'm going to, I need a little payback here. He, doesn't, he just says, I'm going to preserve it, I'm going to save you. He's actually, you've wronged me so much, and that's the reason I'm here. Actually, God's the bigger reason, but I'm here, and I'm going to save you. I'm in Egypt because of you, but now I'm going to save you so that you can be preserved. But the other side of this is God's plans move forward in spite of people who live for themselves. So God's plans move forward because of people who die to themselves. God's plans move forward in spite of people who live for themselves. And we see this in those the verses in ch- verses uh, 5 through 8 we'll fo- uh, chapter 45 we'll see how Joseph says in verse 5 and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here okay so f- why is he in Egypt because his brother sold him here 
rest of the verse, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So wait, why is he there? Is it because his brothers sold him there? Or is it because God sent him there? And the answer is both. That God's plans move forward in spite of people who live for themselves. Joseph's brothers were living for themselves. They're like, we don't like this guy, and we're going to get rid of him. We don't, they're very own brother. They get rid of him, and God's plans uses, moves forward in spite of people who live for themselves. Like he wants this family to bless the world through, and he's going to keep them alive. He preserves their lives in spite of their sinful, broken, evil actions. And God uses their evil actions actually to save them, that they evilly sent Joseph down, and now that's actually the, the way that he's saving them. We might, as we think about for our lives and looking at Judah and Joseph, they died in themselves. It's a very hard thing to do. And giving up our rights is maybe something we don't even think about very much. Of, and I was, as I was thinking about it, like, what do I, you know, what do I hold on to my rights? When do I feel like I have the right to something? And these are three temptations that we face uh, to put our rights above dying to ourselves, of saying, like, I have the right for this. So I think these will just be three questions. The first is, how do you treat people that you pay for a service? There's a temptation in this. How do you treat people that you pay for a service, whether it's cashier, or waitress, or internet, or lawn mowing people, or whatever it is? How do you treat people that you pay for a service? Do you have a feel you have a right to be mean or impatient or harsh with them when they don't perform as you want? Like, I have a right to... Good internet. I have a right to my lawn being cut. And so if you don't do it, if you don't perform on the task, now I have a right to demand that and to be harsh to you about it and impatient. Or, as we saw in Philippians 2, do you look out for their concerns and their interests and their feelings instead of de- claiming, like, I have the, I paid money, good money for this, now I have a right to get what I want. And do we do that? Or we say, you know what? I'm going to care about their interests, their concerns. Of course, you don't have to say, like, uh, oh, well, I, I'm paying for internet, but I'm not getting any, so I just don't do anything about it. It doesn't mean being a doormat, uh, but it means, like, can we be patient and kind as we ask people, like, hey, the internet's not working. You didn't do a great job with my lawn, or you know, whatever it is, or you weren't a great waitress. I mean, you don't necessarily have to say that, but, like, do we be like, well, she's not going to get a tip now, you know? What it, whatever it is, is, like, what do we do to, like, pay people back for the service they don't give us that we feel we have a right to? Second temptation is our use of money. How do you use your money and property? How do you use your money and property? Do you think, it's my money and my stuff. I've earned it, so I'll do what I want with it. Like, it's here, it's in my bank account, I worked hard for it, now I'm just going to do what I want with it. I'm going to do what I want with this house, with this car, with this truck, with this car, whatever it is. Um, or do you see it as a gift from God? Ask Him how He wants you to use it and looking out for the concerns and interests of others, to bless them with it, that we don't say, like, it's my right to use this as I want to. Instead, do we say, you know what, I'm a steward of this, and God's given it to me so I can be a channel of blessing to other people, and I'm not going to clog that pipe by holding on to my rights. Like, God's given this to me to bless others um, through me. Thirdly and lastly, how do you treat people who have wronged or hurt you? How do you treat people who have wronged or hurt you? Do you surrender your right to get even? Or do you treat them as they have treated you? Well, they've hurt me, so I'll hurt them back. 
They've been distant with me, I'll be distant back. Oh, you're not you know, giving me the silent treatment, I'll give you the silent treatment back. Do we treat people as they've treated us when they've wronged or hurt us? These are three temptations we have uh, when we're uh, to hold on to our rights. And so what, why do we have a hard time surrendering the rights of our lives? Why do we have a hard time with this? And it really comes down, one of the things is fear. Why are we afraid, uh, why do we have a hard time surrendering our rights to our lives? Well, we're afraid to let go of our lives. If I let go of my life, and you know, Judah, think about this situation. Uh, he's letting go of the direction of his life. Like that's not what he planned. You know, that wasn't his ten-year plan of like, okay, I guess I'm going to be a slave in Egypt now. Uh, that's not his ten-year plan. And we can think, who's going to take care of me? Uh, I want I what life as it is. I can hold on to that. And I'm scared of how it will be if I open it up. But the future of the unknown. And you might very well be thinking, like, what's going to happen to my family? But he's keeping his word. Judah had the choice, uh, the difference between Joseph and Judah, Judah had the choice to embrace a future with hardship. Joseph had the choice uh, to let go of a past with hardship. You know, Judah had the choice to embrace a future with hardship. Like, what is this going to be? So for yourself, is there a hardship you're unwilling to embrace? Is there something God's calling you into? Uh, maybe it's letting go of your life in some way and you're like, I just don't want, I want to hold it how it is. That's too unknown. That's too scary. Who's going to take care of me if I move into that? Is there a hardship you're unwilling to embrace? God may have already brought it into your life and you're just saying like, I don't want to embrace this. You're kind of complaining, wanting it to go away and you're not embracing it. Or you may be unwilling to move out of comfort into hardship and sacrifice. And then why do we have a hard time surrendering our rights to get even? Um, we're afraid to let go of whatever pain people have caused us because, well, who's going to take care of that? Like, they've done a wrong and somebody needs to pay for it. They need to be held accountable. So who's going to take care of that wrong? If I let go of it, then they get away with it. I need to make them own up to this, take responsibility for it, and for it to happen. Joseph had the choice to let go of a past with hardship. Judah's moving into the future with hardship. Joseph is letting go of that pain, that past affliction and hardship that he had from his brothers. And is there a hardship you're unwilling to let go of? Is there a hardship you're unwilling to let go of from your past? This doesn't mean that you have to forgive somebody. Forgiveness uh, and reconciliation requires two people. And But there is something you can do which is uh, releasing it to the Lord. Holding on to the pain of your past is making the choice to let those people to control you. They're weighing you down, holding on to your present actions. It's like, I have this my mystery bag up here. It's like you're just dragging this thing around. You've got this ledger of wrongs they've done, and it's this weight you're carrying. They're, doing, they're off doing their own life. Like They're not being affected by it unless they're weighed down by the guilt too. But when we keep like a ledger of wrongs, we're just dragging these around with us. And we're not willing to let go of it. And it becomes this weight and this burden. We feel resentment and bitterness and anger. And we're thinking about it all the time. And we're anxious. And we're, you know, that's just like what fills our thoughts. And meanwhile, the person who wronged us is just doing their life. And we're actually punishing ourselves. And keeping a ledger of wrongs, it, we say, you know, this person wronged me, this person wronged me, they wronged me here. And we just focus on all that stuff. And we don't have to erase the ledger and be like, Okay, fine. <clears throat> I'm just going to ignore all those things, put them aside, and I'm going to, you know, just treat them like it never happened. You don't have to erase it. What we do is we release it to Jesus, and we say, like, you know, what? You have the ledger too. You've seen what they've done. I'm going to let you take care of it. I'm going to let you be the judge. I'm not going to be the one who gets them to pay for this. And if they've trusted in Jesus, 
He already paid for it on the cross. If they haven't trusted in Jesus, then they're going to be held accountable for it at the end of their life. But we can say, I'm going to release it to him. He's a better judge. And both of these take faith. Like moving into the unknown of life and surrendering the rights to our life and how it goes, that takes faith. Will he be a good shepherd that can actually will actually walk me into good places, even if it's a dark valley or if it's a green field or whatever it is? And surrendering our rights to get payback uh, is trusting him, having faith in him. He's the best judge. He's the best one to deal with it. He's going to be fair. And I don't need to s- seek out punishment and payback in this life. I'm going to give him the ledger of wrongs. And he's going to take care of it. Either he paid for it, nailed it on the cross, um, or they will answer for it at the end of their life. As we think about us living like Jesus, we, we look the least like Jesus when we're holding on to our rights. We look the least like Jesus when we're holding on to our rights. We look the most like Jesus when we're dying to ourselves. We never look more like Jesus than when we're dying to ourselves and we're releasing our life and we're letting go and we're surrendering it because we saw in Philippians 2, Jesus did not hold on to whatever rights or he thought that he, that he could have had like legitimately as the Son of God with privileges and how he should be treated. He let go of those and he was obedient. And that's why we can be saved and forgiven. We're never more like Jesus than when we die to ourselves. And as we, our community, as a church family, God desired to use the family of Abraham, and now we're heirs and uh, children of Abraham by faith. Uh, we, we trust in Jesus. We have that same faith Abraham had, and God desires for his family, his people, as we think about forgiveness and letting go of our lives, of people who are showing radical trust and people who are showing radical forgiveness. And God desires for his family be a community that's eager to freely admit when we've done wrong, and that's eager to forgive those who've done wrong, and that we are, we're talking to each other about it, we're forgiving each other, and we're radically trusting um, Jesus, who takes us into the unknown, and who saves us and who forgives us, and now we can extend that same forgiveness to one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story of... Uh, the trust that both these men showed and that show us a picture of Jesus and that he is our pledge of safety and that when we're in your presence we do not need to be afraid and we can draw near without fear or distress because we belong there because you've made it so that we are worthy to belong there. So thank you as we practice the Lord's Supper. Would you please allow us to partake of that in a physical way. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.